Good morning. My name is Mario Morales. I do come to you today from the church plant in Joliet, Illinois, which, as you know, is called Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church. I extend to you a greeting of fellowship and love. We are so thankful for the many prayers that you have been praying for us. We also indeed have been praying for you all as well. We celebrated with you when Kendall and Emily had their fourth little daughter. So beautiful. But we also indeed struggle with just the overwhelming things that have been going on with them and the sicknesses that they've been struggling with. So we do love you. We are in close contact with you through social media and then through the training that Kendall has been doing with Luke and myself. So we just thank you so much for the love and the union that we now have with you over the union that we have with you through Christ. So today uh, our passage is going to come to us out of Acts chapter 1. It's going to be primarily, uh, it's going to be a two-part series that I'm going to do because I'm going to be here again next Sunday. So I don't know where I'll finish. I have a goal in mind for today. My hope is to go through Acts chapter 1 and then end at verse 8. And then next week would focus primarily on verse 6 through 11. But we're going to read all of Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. And then also in my sermon, I'll be piggybacking off of uh, Luke chapter 24. So if you want to put a thumb there as well, uh, you know, you'll get ahead of the game with that one. Would you join me in the reading of God's word? I'll be reading from the ESV. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. O glorious and heavenly Father, creator of all things, we come before you as creatures fallen in Adam. Father, we also come to you in light of Christ, our mediator, our savior, and our king, our Lord, our high priest. We thank you, O God, for your spirit that lives within us, We thank you for your word. We ask, O God, that you would allow us to be fed by your word. We thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of holy fellowship here today on the Lord's Day. Be gracious to us, O God. Feed us and nourish our souls as we desperately need to be fed. We ask these things in the name of of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the title of the sermon today was a little bit of a struggle for me. It was very Puritan in its beginning forms. It was very long, and then I shortened it, and then Kendall helped me to shorten it up a little bit more. But the title for today's sermon is The Purpose and the Power of Christ's Church. And there'll be two points that I'll really try to emphasize 
Um, the first uh, point is going to be the church's purpose and power is in the person and work of Christ alone. And that will be primarily on verses 1 through 2. And then the second part will be where we focus on Christ's resurrection. And then we will end with talking briefly about the ascension of Christ. And I say briefly because next week I will be focusing on the ascension and then on the, uh, Christ's second coming, which we refer to as his consummation of all things. And then we'll touch on the things that have happened in the process and how that relates to us for next week. But if we're going to look here at Acts chapter 1, let us focus here. We're going to go through these verses, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word if possible. And I hope that it will be a, uh, fruitful for all of us, including myself. So looking at Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Looking at the phrase in the first book, primarily in church history, the church has affirmed that what is referred to as the first book is what we know as the book of Luke. There are many reasons for this, but one of the main reasons which will be clear when I read it, is that the writer to, uh, of the book of Acts, he refers to uh, a name, and he uses the name Theophilus. The same name is used in Luke chapter 1. If you turn to Luke chapter 1, just real quick, or just uh, let me do that, and I'll read it to you. Luke chapter 1 says this. Luke chapter 1 says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This name, Theophilus, is what really helps church history bridge the idea that the writer of Acts is also the writer of what we call Luke. So who is Theophilus? That next word there where it says, oh, Theophilus. Well, most commentators recognize Theophilus as an individual. Some other commentators would suggest that based off of the Greek, that Theophilus could refer to Christians because the, the name Theophilus can, in Greek, is known as lover of God. But there's a title in Luke chapter 1 where uh, the writer of that book refers to Theophilus. Uh, let me see here. I'm going to turn there again. I lost, I had closed it and I forgot. He refers to him as, oh, excellent. He says, most excellent Theophilus. That phrase, most excellent Theophilus, is used a few times in the book of Acts by Paul when he refers to, or when he's addressing Felix and Festus. And Felix and Festus are these Roman rulers, and this title, most excellent, is given to them. And so many of the commentators conclude then that Theophilus isn't just a, a blanket statement of, you know, lover of God or the Christians of the time, but it, the, the writer of Acts is specifically referring to an individual known as Theophilus. Who is this Theophilus? Well, we know he was most excellent. That is about the gist of what we know about him, and rightly so because the book of Luke and the book of Acts isn't focused on the recipient or the writer, but it is focused on the person and work of Christ. In the first book, O Theophilus, I, the I, who is the writer of the book in Acts? For many, probably for all of us, we have taken it for granted that we, it's Luke, right? That, that's what it's called, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. But why do, we, why do we think that? Why did the church in history past affirm that the writer of Luke and the writer of Acts is Luke himself? Well, Luke and Acts do not actually give Authorship. It doesn't name an author. So how do we deduce these things? Well, what we know about Luke is that Luke, he traveled with Paul. He went on missionary journeys with Paul many times. And the writer of Acts refers to these missionary journeys. And in chapter 16, 
the word, well, prior to chapter 16, he keeps talking about Paul and these people and refers to them in, in the third person. But in chapter 16, he begins to shift and the wording begins to talk about then we and then us. In the process, he's still naming different people. And so just by deduction, you know, church history has affirmed that, you know, this, this must be Luke. Luke was a, phys- a physician, we know this, and the structure of, the, of Luke and Acts, the Greek there is very, very sharp. It's very, very, you could tell that this person was well-educated. And so just by deduction, again, here, the church is ascribing authorship to Luke for the book of Luke and Acts. I have a quote here that says, um, the consensus of the early Christian tr- tradition points to Luke as the author of Luke and Acts. This is what was passed on by Irenaeus and Tertullian. These were early church fathers. So from the very early of church history, of Christian history, the authorship was affirmed by these men uh, giving authorship to Luke. So as this was passed on by Irenaeus and Tertullian, and the earliest manuscript of this gospel has the inscription on it according to Luke. And there are no early Christian traditions that attribute this gospel to anyone other than Luke. And so we see here that the author of Acts, we're assigning that authorship to Luke. Luke wrote the book of Luke and Acts because in both he's referring to the most excellent Theophilus. And we affirm and recognize that Theophilus is a person receiving these letters. We don't know why. Maybe he was commissioned by Luke to do so. But the Lord has blessed us with the word. And what we will see is that we are all meant to read this and to recognize that Christ has come, Christ was crucified, Christ has risen, and so much more. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Looking at the phrase, having dealt with all, I made mention of Luke chapter 1. Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. This will be a huge help for us to try to understand what does Luke mean by all. Did Luke really write down everything that Jesus did and taught? Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 again. Luke chapter 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I mean, if, if we consider just the book of Luke, and we were to do a really, a really broad overview of the book of Luke, we could break it down into three categories. We could talk about Jesus' birth. Luke is unique in that he also talks about um, John the Baptist's birth. He talks about Mary and the angel, where the angel visits Mary and tells her about the fact that she's going to be pregnant. Mary visits Elizabeth, and we have the birth of Jesus and the shepherds, but we have no wise men. And then we have, he quickly jumps to when Jesus is 12 years old, where they go to Jerusalem for the festival, and Jesus, they lose track of their own son. If you have kids, you know, that's, that's, a very, that's a very scary thing, you know. I, I can't imagine five minutes without knowing where my children are at. And here they have already been on a long journey, and they have to turn back and go back to Jerusalem. But they find him in the temple. Well, there's a time gap there from when he was born to when he was 12. And then he jumps from 12 to his baptism, when Jesus was baptized, and then his ministry began. Did Luke really mean that he dealt with everything? Indeed, I would argue that he did not. So if we were to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, I really like the NASB wording here. 
Um, it's, more, it's a more literal translation, and I think it really brings out the Greek of what I, the point I'm trying to make here. The NASB says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished, he says, among us. Verse 2 says, Just as they were handed down, as they were handed down to us, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. What does Luke mean by all? Well, if you look at verse 2 from the ESV, he says those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers. So what he's really concerned with here is the things that the eyewitnesses and the things that the ministers who were meant to minister are concerned about. For what purpose? If you look at verse 1, well, they compiled these things into narratives. The NASB says it was compiled into an account. Those things that have been accomplished. In addition, Luke adds in verse 3, he says, and I'll read the NASB, he says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything. I mean, Luke wants you to rest assured that he has done the legwork of investigation. And this isn't just him, a one-off guy, trying to piece everything together. He is among the eyewitnesses and the ministers of the things that were accomplished in front of them. Verse uh, 3, he says uh, in the NESB, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. What beginning are we talking about here? Well, we know that Luke starts with the birth of Jesus Christ, but really with the foretelling of Jesus Christ. And then Luke says, to write it out for you in consecutive order. The ESV says, an orderly account. Luke was very intentional about describing what he means by all. These are the things that are most essential, the things that are most important, the things that were handed down to him by eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. These are things that were compiled to present Christ to Theophilus, written down so that eventually the church may come to know who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And the question that we can ask at this point is why did Luke do this? What was his main concern? What was his purpose? What was his drive? Well, if we look at uh, verse 4, he says that you may have certainty. That you may have certainty concerning the things. The NASB says there, so that you may know the exact truth. Well, what does certainty mean? If we looked at the Oxford English Dictionary for a good definition of the word certainty, it says the quality or state of being subjective Subjectively certain. Assurance. I mean, when this word assurance for the Christian is like after salvation, right? Assurance. Confidence. Absence of doubt or hesitation. Boys and girls, look up here. The word certainty, do you know what that means? What are you certain about? I guarantee when you take a bath... You know the difference between cold water and hot water. You know it very well. You've been exposed to this, and you know when the water is cold and when the water is hot. There is a certainty here that the writer of Acts is telling us that we can have. What are your doubts in life, brothers and sisters, concerning Christ? Come to the word, be fed, and know that these things were written for your certainty. Going back to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. You can go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The question here is, 
Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What does the world say about Jesus? What do other people say about Jesus? What do other religions say about Jesus? What do you say Jesus is? Who do you say he is? Well, other religions and people may say that Jesus is just a man. They may say Jesus is a God, not the God. The God the way we understand as the Trinity. They may say he is only a mere manifestation of the Father. The Holy Spirit being a manifestation of, the, of Jesus. Some say that he is just an angel. And by just, I add that word, that he is just an angel. Some even say that he is a myth. What do others say Jesus did and taught? Well, he was a good moral teacher. You know, some may even allow that he did miracles. Some even say that he is a good prophet. So they acknowledge that Jesus historically is a person minus the myth, but they don't ascribe to him what the scriptures say about Jesus. What do they say about his death and his resurrection? That indeed he died, but he did not resurrect from the grave. His body was stolen. We see that in the Gospels. Let us begin to tell the lie that they stole his body. What do you say about Jesus? What do you say about what he did and what he taught? Where do your opinions concerning the Lord come from? Because if they don't come from the Bible, I encourage you to check yourself. Check and see indeed that the things that you say about Jesus are what the scriptures teach us about Jesus. Jesus did not leave himself without witnesses. He did so with the apostles. They were charged to be these witnesses and these ministers that Luke is referring to. In Luke chapter 24, verse 48, right before his ascension, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you are my witnesses of these things. These were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. John chapter 21, verse 24 through 25, John refers to himself, well, he, he, this is what the writer says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. In Acts chapter 1, verse 1 here, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. We see that the level of witnesses begins to be added upon. You have the eyewitnesses, now Luke, and then him with Theophilus. Do you see a pattern here? This is church history. This is what we are called to do. They bore witness concerning who Jesus is and what he said and what he did. Our Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, is a useful tool here in helping us confess what the Scriptures teach concerning Jesus. Chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, paragraph 2, reads as this, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things, he has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Those are some hefty words. They're good commentaries on what those words mean. Which person is very good and very man, or sorry, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Our confession of faith is a useful tool 
that helps us to understand what the scriptures teach us. You know, consistently, at least in my life, I was familiar with commentaries and other sermons when I was not reformed, when I was not confessional. Thank God for confessions of faith. Good confessions of faith. We subscribe to the 1689 because we see this confession as being that confession which confesses what the scriptures teach clearly and accurately. Take use of the means of grace, the word of God, but also utilize your confession. Know what it says about Christ and about salvation. So what do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? What is your confession concerning the person of Christ? What he said and what he did? What is your confession of faith concerning the Lord? Looking at Acts chapter 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. To do. We can call those the acts of Christ. That's really what the book of Luke is. You know, the, Luke is writing here in Acts chapter 1. He's referring to this, his first letter, which really is all-encompassing, focused on the, on the things that Jesus did. Not to say that Acts, the book of Acts, isn't going to include that. It will, and we'll shed more light on that next week. But for sure, Luke's purpose in writing his first letter to Theophilus was to expose, to affirm, to add confidence to Theophilus and get by God's grace to the church at large the things that Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Well, we know he healed the blind, did he not? He healed the blind, he healed the sick, he healed the lame, he healed the lepers. He raised people from the dead. We know the story of Lazarus. He even cast out demons. But John, in chapter 21, which we already read, verse 24, but couple that with verse 25, John says, uh, he says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, the one who has written these things, that we may know that his testimony is true. Verse 25 says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Is that just like fancy way of you sort of writing this story concerning Jesus? Or are we to truly believe that there are many things that Jesus did? I mean, the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said led to his crucifixion. It's amazing to think that the presence of God in the person of Christ in front of these people who have been waiting for the Messiah could look at the things that Jesus did, Jesus did and hear the things that Jesus said and deny him. And yet the scriptures talk about this. I mean, we look back and if we take in light all of scripture, we know that this, this was meant to be. I mean, this is what led to his crucifixion. Do you know what the Bible says about what works Jesus did? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. We could also refer to this as the doctrines of Christ. What did God, sorry, he is God, what did Jesus teach his people? What did, de- what did Jesus teach? Well, we know if we're familiar with the four Gospels that de- Jesus taught many things. I want to focus, though, on one main thing that Jesus taught. Looking at Luke, Luke chapter 24. I told you we would go there uh, in the beginning of the sermon. Luke chapter 24, there are three times where Luke really hounds in. And this is right before his ascension, so it's fitting for here. Luke hounds in on one thing that Jesus taught. This is very, very important. So let's turn to Luke chapter 24. Three times Luke emphasizes probably the most important truth that Jesus taught his disciples concerning himself. 
at his resurrection, if we look at Luke chapter 24, verses 5 through 9, at his, resurrections, at his resurrection, the angels say to those at the empty tomb who were frightened by the fact that Jesus was gone, he says, or the angel says in verse 5, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Christ here were reminded, and they were reminded, that Christ knew that he must suffer and then later on be resurrected unto glory. If we look further down uh, on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 34, if you're not familiar with this, these are two men on the road to Emmaus and they're talking about these things. And then this man comes up to them. We later find out when he breaks the bread, they go back to a village and he sits down to eat with them and he breaks the bread and then he vanishes. And they're like, oh, I, 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 did you not recognize? Did you not feel this? Did you not? And they recognize that this was the resurrected Savior. On the, uh, but if we look uh, at verse 18, one of them whose name was Cleopas when, he, when Jesus comes up to them and he's hearing what they're talking about and he's asking about it, they say to Jesus, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days, there in these days? And Jesus says to them, what things? <laughs> God, you know, he, he was so patient and so kind and he still is to us today. He said, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet. Mary, who is Jesus? Okay. A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Jesus hears this and graciously responds to them by saying <laughs> graciously, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, Jesus didn't just say these things. The prophets spoke of these things. Was, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Further on in Luke chapter 24, Looking at verses 44 through 47 here, Jesus is among his disciples. This is before he takes them up to the hill where he ends up going and ascending into heaven. Jesus looks at them and says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Why do we sing the Psalms? <laughs> because Christ is proclaimed there, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is illumination. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's a lot of specific information. I mean, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might wonder, where are these things? (laughs) Where are these things? It is not only the testimony of the apostles or of Luke that we have uh, in order uh, concerning the truth about Jesus. Jesus himself says that the Old Testament spoke of him. Jesus taught these things to his disciples, the eyewitnesses, the ministers. These disciples, in turn, taught these things to Luke. You seeing the pattern here? I mean, you take this information in, you come to saving faith in Christ, and it does not stop there. You continue to grow in your knowledge and in your love for God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but these things ought to be proclaimed and taught as well. It does, this information does not stop with me. It does not stop with you. Again, our confession of faith with regards to talking about how the Old Testament speaks and proclaims the works of Jesus says in chapter 7 of God's covenant, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. We call it the good news proclaimed in the Old Testament. First of all, to Adam, the seed, the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman who ends up crushing the head of the serpent. And afterwards, our confession says, by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. That completion we see in Luke chapter 24 is Christ telling his disciples, their minds being illuminated to the word that they have already, the Old Testament, that the Old Testament proclaimed Christ's sufferings and his subsequent glories. This was not new information. Their hearts, their hearts may have been hardened. They may have ears that did not hear and eyes that did not see at the time. They may have saw what they saw Jesus do and heard the things that he, that he was teaching them and sort of, you know, he's a good teacher. He's, he's our rabbi. He's, he's the Messiah, you know, because when they see him crucified, they disperse. Peter denies Jesus three times. God revealed the promise of the gospel through the covenants concerning his son. He proclaimed his son by the holy patriarchs, our confession says. The prophets prophesied concerning the Messiah. Jesus was seen in the sacrifices, through types and shadows, through the ceremonies, through the tabernacle, through the temple. God revealed his son in the Old Testament. You know, they couldn't touch him. They, they did not see him. In the New Testament talks that they looked, they, they were prophesying of things in the, in the future, but they, they could not, they didn't, they didn't walk and talk with Jesus like the apostles did. We have never done that either. We look back and we see Christ. They look forward and they saw Christ. All of us coming to saving faith through the promises revealed and the promises fulfilled. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who grew up and began his ministry with repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We're talking about the things that Jesus taught his disciples. He did and taught many things, so much so that, as we said earlier, as John says, all the books in the world could not contain, because you can't put Jesus in a box. I mean, if you look at the things he did and the things he taught, I mean, we're here because we're being fed and we're, we're appealing to the Spirit and to the Father to show us Jesus. There is never a time where we should feel like, all right, I'm good. Or, you know, I, I, I know enough. No, Christ is infinite. Christ is part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's so much to, to know about who Christ is. And then even taking into account the work of the Father and the Spirit in all of this. These eyewitnesses and ministers were chosen by Jesus. The information was handed down by them. Luke compiled these, a narrative for, Theo, for Theophilus, 
We learn further on in the book of Acts that there were missionary efforts by the apostles, especially Paul to the Gentiles. This information never stopped. The things concerning who Jesus is, what he did, and what he taught never stopped with those people that received the word. True disciples of Jesus Christ go and make disciples. Don't you see the weight of the witness that we have before us? We are not like the Old Testament believers who saw from afar. We are New Testament believers that see the fullness of Christ in his word. Turn back to Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The word began there. Luke is just emphasizing again that he has done the work from the beginning. And in verse 2, he says, until the day when he was taken up. So what are we concerned with when we're talking about the timeline of Jesus? Well, we look to Luke for the beginning. And here in verse 2, he tells us that our concern is with at the point of, or at least the things that Jesus did, the last thing being his ascension. And so you could look at the bookends of the work of Christ not ending at the cross, but it continues beyond his resurrection. The work of Christ does not end at his resurrection. Jesus has died for you. He was resurrected for you. He was also ascended for you. These are things we must understand and confess Jesus loves us so much so that he died, that he was resurrected, and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Luke and Acts are full of all that is sufficient to know with certainty those things concerning Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. That phrase, until the day when he was taken up, is again referring to his ascension, but I want you to consider the idea of Jesus leaving his disciples again. I mean, the first time he was taken from them by force and crucified, and what do they do? They scatter, they they deny, they go to the upper room, they doubt, they forget the things that Jesus taught them, taught them that he must suffer and three days later resurrect from the grave. They forgot these things. And so imagine again Jesus is being taken up from them. They don't get to spend time with him. Post-resurrection, Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples and he reveals himself to many different people uh, let me um, skip ahead a little bit. Uh, you know, well, I'll get to that later. He, he reveals himself to many people. There's this time of 40 days where Jesus is with them again after his death and resurrection, and then he ends up leaving again. But what is the response of the apostles, of the disciples this time when Jesus leaves? If we look, and you don't have to turn there, if we looked at Luke chapter 24, Verses 50 through 53, Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And here is their new response. Remember, they, are, they have borne witness of the resurrected Christ. Christ, again, illuminates their minds to what the law and the prophets and the Psalms said concerning him. Their response in Luke chapter 24, verse 52 is, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Something has happened to these people. These people have come to saving faith in Christ. They have borne witness to the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the work and the things that he taught were accomplished. The climax being his crucifixion and his resurrection, but also the teaching that happens in that 40-day span prior to his ascension. And then Christ is taken up into glory, into heaven, leaving them yet again, and their response is worship, great joy, 
and blessing God in the temple. These are different people. These are different people. Boys and girls, I want you to think about a, the emotions that come through when you've lost someone or something. It could be something as simple as your favorite little toy. I know we deal with that quite often in our own home. Or perhaps you've lost a dog. Or perhaps you are familiar with losing a loved one. There is emotion in that. These disciples experienced grave emotion when Christ was crucified. But boys and girls, when Christ was resurrected and revealed himself to his disciples, their attitude changed because they saw the resurrected Christ and they began to worship and they have great joy, exceeding joy, and they praise God in the temple. We are here to worship. We are here with great joy. We are here today to worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because of the person and work of Christ. I want you to look at verse 2. It says, until the day he was taken up. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 2. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. This phrase, through the Spirit, adds to the authority and the grace that God or that Christ communicates to his disciples. Remember, they were illuminated of the things that Christ taught them. The resurrection power that Christ endured is the same resurrection power that we will endure. These men were filled with the Holy Spirit. The nature of this command or these commands that Luke talks about here in Acts 2 come with divine authority. And who did Jesus give this command to? Well, he gave it to the apostles. These apostles were people that he had chosen. And, you know, the, the ministry of Christ did not end really at his ascension. I hesitate to talk about this because we're going to talk about this next Sunday, but, you know, Christ chose his apostles. Not just anyone. Well, there is a, there is a way in which apostles are those that are sent out. But these were clear, clearly a, an office that the apostles held. And they lost one because he was the betrayer of Jesus. But the work of Christ did not end there. Christ was indeed involved in choosing the replacement for Judas with Matthias when they pray and they cast lots, but they pray to the Lord, asking him to reveal whether it was Matthias or the other guy. <laughs> Paul, our Christ also was involved in revealing himself resurrected to Paul and choosing him as the apostle to the Gentiles. This command that, God, that, that Christ gives to his apostles is through the divine power of the Holy Spirit. Well, what is this command? Well, this command is here, we're told, is to, is to, uh, oh, let's look at verse 3. One second here. This command here, let's start at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while they were staying with them, he ordered. The command here, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. As Reformed Baptists, we recognize that Christ gave many commands. We look to communion. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We look at Matthew 28 where he says, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this last final command here is to go and wait in Jerusalem. And what were they to wait for? Well, it says here that they were to wait for the promise of the Father. So as he departs from them, he tells them, commands them to go and to wait. 
We'll talk about this next week, but the purpose of this is to, for them to go to the place and to wait for them to receive the promise of the Father. We know this to be the Holy Spirit coming upon them, them being filled with the Holy Spirit. But one thing I don't want to uh, gloss over is in verse 3, it says that he presented himself alive to them. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. I mean, we've, we've, uh, we've talked about this and I've mentioned this over and over again, but I want you to just see that this is Luke again bringing into our memory, putting into our focus that Christ had died and Christ has risen. Many other things he did and many other things he taught, but this is important. Christ was resurrected from the dead. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, Paul says here, he addresses himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 11. Go and read that. I had intended on hitting that here today, but I encourage you to read through 1 Corinthians. See the weight and the power that comes in knowing that Christ is resurrected. If Christ had not risen from the dead, then we are left hopeless and helpless. We have no gospel message to proclaim. We have no gospel message to hope in, to trust in. We would be fools if Christ was not risen from the dead. Again, Christ was taken up into glory Christ commands them to go and to wait for the promise of the Father. Christ leaves. He is gone, but he has left them with the word that he taught them, the scriptures that were always there before them, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And these things were fulfilled in their midst. We were not there. But we have the word. We must know who Jesus is. We must know what Jesus did, and we must know what Jesus taught through his word alone. I have three applications here uh, to the unsaved first. What do we do with this information? Well, the ministry, or Christ began his ministry with the proclamation of repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ ends his ministry with believe. He ends his ministry with revealing and, and exposing them to the things that he did, the things that scripture taught concerning Jesus. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord that came that was, that was given to us in flesh, but fully God and fully man, who never sinned, who was crucified, not just because he upsetted the people around him, but the scriptures foretold that he must suffer and die and three days later be resurrected from the dead. We read how that is the power of, of Christ is in his resurrection where he is declared to be the son of God. If you are not saved today, I implore you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. We can call this repentance and belief faith. We say this, we are saved by grace through faith. And a lot of times I was having a discussion with someone at work and it's been a long time since I've heard this, but he's talking about blind faith. And we, we did not subscribe to that at all. But 
Do you know what we mean by faith? Well, I don't have to explain who this person is, but if we look at the Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins, in question 21, he asks this question, what is true faith? And the answer is true faith is not only knowledge and conviction. Knowledge and conviction. The demons knew who Jesus were, and they knew it truthfully. They knew that he was the Holy One of Israel. They trembled. They knew he had authority over them. True faith does not stop with knowledge and conviction. It says here, true faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his holy word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance This assurance, again, goes back to, harkens to Luke, where he says, certainty of truth. You must know the things concerning Christ. You must be convicted of these things. But brothers and sisters, come to saving faith in Christ, if you are not already, come to saving Christ with full assurance of salvation. Rest in that full assurance of salvation that comes through the word and the work of the Holy Spirit. The answer continues that this assurance is created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation. And so if you are not saved, I implore you, repent and believe savingly with faith that saves you, not a blind faith. Blind faith is no faith at all. To the Christian, I want to encourage you to remember, I kept saying this, Jesus, these things were in the Old Testament. Jesus taught these things to his disciples. They in turn were bore witness to these things. Luke goes to them, they tell him. Luke makes an account and gives it to Theophilus. In Acts, they go out and they begin to do missionary journeys. Don't hold this information in for yourself. Don't be a Christian that is living in this world and yet is not going and making disciples. There are many different ways that we can do this. I see so many beautiful children in this room and I encourage you, fathers and mothers, this starts in the home. The call to go and make disciples, to teach them the things that Jesus said and do, begin in the home. But if you have no children and you are married, then teach one another. Grow in the faith and in the love of who Christ is by teaching in the home, in the workplace, in the public life. You know, a lot of times teaching can be as simple as a bumper sticker on our car. But if you couple that with road rage, what are you doing to the message of the gospel? You are failing to teach what you proclaim through a bumper sticker. And here we are today, teaching one another when we sing psalms and hymns, proclaiming truths of the gospel to one another. It's not just worship. We are serving one another, proclaiming these words. So sing, say these words, because it is edifying to each and every one of us. And then come to the ministry of the word here on the Lord's day. It is a means of grace to you to hear the word and to teach it to others. And lastly, as the disciples did in Luke, worship and rejoice. And be glad and praise God because we are left with a hope that rests on information that was not done in the corner realms of the world. This was not done hidden behind closed doors. This was done publicly. This was proclaimed in the Old Testament. This was done in front of eyewitnesses and these eyewitnesses proclaim these truths even unto death. 
so that we in turn here years later may be read and fed and exposed to the knowledge of who Christ is. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, worship and rejoice and be glad because we worship a risen Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, O God. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the covenant of grace, the everlasting covenant that between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that works itself out through the promise in the Old Testament and is fulfilled in the new covenant through the shed blood of Christ. We thank you for the power that comes through his resurrection. We thank you for Christ ascending to your right hand, O God. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your faithfulness can be seen through promises fulfilled and through the word given to us so that we may come to know who your son is, so that we may know him confidently and so that we may know him savingly. Help us, O God, to have full assurance of salvation through the work and person of Christ alone. Amen.